Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast segment of ROI Show 549 that's not broadcast on the station. Our guest for today is Dr. Patricia Stratch, professor and undergraduate director in the Department of Political Science at the University of Albany. And we're going to be talking about her and Dr. Kathleen Sullivan's book, The Politics of Trash, How Governments Used Corruption to Clean Cities from 1890 to 1929. Our history buffs are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. Rick, start us off. Thank you, Jay. Uh, Patricia, being a uh, graduate of political science myself, uh, mm. find this an intriguing topic. I uh, was involved in local government in a uh, southwestern city, and uh, politics still drove trash collection uh, in that city. Uh, the question I have is, what role, I'm going to use organized crime because mafia is no longer an accepted term. <laughs> how, how much uh, involvement uh, did organized crime bosses have in the collection of of trash, particularly in the Northeast? And I'm thinking of Tony um, uh, Soprano <laughs> and that epic uh, TV program. But how, how much involvement did they have in, in uh, motoring trash collection? So we we don't have them in the 19th century. We don't have we have lots of different kinds of corruption, but we don't have kind of the organized uh, corruption of like we would see in the Sopranos. But I did have one of my undergraduates uh, wrote an honors thesis about garbage and corruption, which you know made my heart sing. And she was looking at, you know, contemporary times and finding that these trash uh, collection, the same thing that I found in the 19th century, that these trash collection providers would get in trouble and they would, you know, uh, you know, federal RICO lawsuits against them and they would get in a bunch of trouble and then they would disband and be reconstituted the same companies providing the same services and kind of buying up neighboring services. And so the same kind of I, I don't know. It's the same kind of processes we see in the 19th century are happening with kind of the the more organized crime in the 20th and 21st centuries in terms of, um, you know, corruption is, is like water and it doesn't go away. It just finds a new pathway by which to exert influence in many cases. Yes. <laughs> if it isn't broke, don't fix it is maybe the... Yeah, yeah. exactly. Brett. So whenever you dig into city government and, and find some dirt. There's always some, some good stories about, you know, petty backstabbing and the, oh, I can't believe it act, actually worked sort of thing. So, so what is your favorite example of that, of either somebody being just incredibly uh, conniving in a way that you just have to admire or um, something that nobody thought would work actually working out? So I wish Kathleen were here because this is the question that she's great at answering. Because one of the, our favorite stories, we were in Pittsburgh, and um, we were looking through the papers of the party boss, and we were surprised that he kept carbon copies of letters that he wrote asking for quid pro quo, I did you a favor, where's my train ticket? <laughs> it was not, 
corruption, what's the difference between corruption now and corruption in the 19th century? Is that it wasn't hidden. It wasn't in the shadows. It was really quite out there and very available for us to see. And so one of our favorite things in looking through these books was the, the things that he would ask for. He's a very powerful person. And we, we were in Pittsburgh recently. We saw the crypt where he's buried, very impressive on a hill with a stained glass window. And he was so petty. He was like asking for things like free shoelaces. So the free train tickets, I want train tickets, I want shoelaces. Like, so the, you know, we always think of corruption in terms of this big money-making endeavor or a big move for power, which, of course, it is. But it also, just as you said, it's so petty it's about shoelaces and train tickets. And, you know, I want something because I did you a favor. So that's what we were most impressed. And, and we were also impressed with the, I mean, he, he was actually a businessman. He was trying to show that this was a model that would work in other cities. So it was kind of a strange combination between corruption to enrich himself, and and he wanted to be a business person that would influence other cities' decisions. Patricia, I think I'm kind of heading where where you just you went. I, I was curious. So our our reformers, our sanitarians, you know, these folks ultimately realize that they they can't get where they want to go to to the this end good without sort of getting in bed with with the folks who are uh, who they they probably aren't very pleased with um so how do they deal with that i, I mean you know usually we think of reformers as being folks who are who really are focused on the right and here they are being forced to sort of compromise their their virtues or their ethics in order to accomplish a task was was there was there anything in your research that that sort of hinted that these guys were having struggles struggles did they just chalk it up to you know how whatever you know how, however however i need to get it done i need to get it done how, how do we have a sense of how they felt about the way this worked yeah they did have to struggle so one of the big constituencies here are businesses and so uh businesses did not want to necessarily run out and pay for trash collection services, but then they, you know, looked at the math and found that these quarantines and the fact that people were dying was, was not good for business for them. And so sometimes they would want to get involved in trash collection programs. And you saw sanitarians kind of change the way they talk about it from this is a public health good to this is a business investment that, that's going to benefit you. So you saw them tweaked. I mean, they really believed in public health, but they would sacrifice kind of that message to achieve their objectives. And with these kind of corrupt officials that were running cities, you know, sanitarians were pushed out of the decision-making process when they created these programs. And then when the, you know, they passed these ordinances, they created these rules, then these governments were like, oh, no, now we have to figure out how to do it. And so oftentimes they would be invited back in, the sanitarians and the engineers, to say, like, okay, well, how, how, what kind of wagons do we need or how do we design this, this plant? And so... They were brought back in, and they they definitely would come back in and offer cities their assistance. So they did have they did have to compromise in many places. Okay, Rick. <laughs> wow, uh, Patricia, I, I have this uh, stock question we ask our guests because I'm I just am fascinated by titles and top topics. What prompted you and Kathleen to write this book? What was going on in your head? 
why did two nice people write a book about garbage and corruption? Perfectly straight, so, yes. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, so Kathleen and I first met uh, 20 years ago or more, and we were doing research on family, the role of family in, in, in government. And we kept getting kind of shunted aside, and people were like, well, family, that's not political. We don't talk about families. And, and we would say, well, we're looking at the ways that families use to achieve other objectives, right? So family and immigration policy or family and law to achieve other kinds of objectives, like anti-poverty measures. And so, you know, we, you know, people kept telling us we couldn't talk about family, and we had this idea that family is a resource. And so we wanted to kind of take this perspective, like, okay, how do we study what resources governments use without kind of preconceived ideas about what those resources are? And then we needed a policy area. We couldn't just talk about this in the abstract. And we chose to look at garbage in the 19th century because at the very same time, all across the country, cities had to deal with the exact same problem, which is these piles of mess in their streets that imperiled public health and made it difficult to conduct business and were just disgusting in general. And so what did they do and how did they do it? And so that gave us the opening to kind of trace the resources that governments used. And that's how we stumbled on corruption as a resource of government to accomplish their objectives. That's kind right. of a long, long roundabout way of getting to garbage and trash. <laughs> Absolutely. Brett. <laughs> okay, so... If I'm a horrendously corrupt uh, businessman in the turn of the century, and this I've, I've heard about this grift and I went in on it, what are the things that I should definitely make sure I do when I'm setting up my uh, corrupt trash business, and what are the things I should avoid for uh, maximum profit? <clears throat> So one of the things that these corrupt businessmen had to do is they had to figure out an inroad into government. So the foundations they lay are less business oriented and more kind of uh, kind of a strategic inroads into into the governing regime. And so in a place like Pittsburgh, the machine decided to contract out to itself. Right. So in that case, they created this kind of American reduction company run by the boss's brother that's basically a front for the party boss. He invested He invested in the resources in building an expensive plant. So he actually went and did it, but he already had a bunch of resources in terms of carts and wagons because he was the street paver. So in that way, oh, and then they went to the state and they made sure that all the contracts would be given to them. So they wrote the contracts so that only they could, only they could get them. So that's how they made those investments less on infrastructure, although they made those too, and more on, okay, we're going to go to the state and we're going to make sure that trash can be provided by the cities and the contracts can be only given to us. And then in St. Louis, you had just the opposite. So the power was held by, by a group of businessmen and that would bribe government officials. So they weren't in government. They just had this conduit who bribed government. And so in that case, they would put out contracts for city services and these these businessmen would would you know bid on these contracts they would inflate the cost of the contract and then they would bribe the city officials so that they would get it so there was like a cost for everything in St. Louis um, and that's how they went about creating the infrastructure 
So it was really a matter of investing in kind of a strategy, figuring out how to influence government, starting there, and then investing in terms of carts and wagons and machinery, et cetera. Patricia, I'm interested. We hear, you know, we hear stories about corrupt politicians, um, Tammany in New York, uh, so forth and so on. We don't usually hear as much about um, the the business people who benefited from some of that corruption, um, and yet obviously that happened. In your research, did any of these uh, corrupt businesses or corrupt political bosses become uh, larger uh, movers and shakers than just within their own cities. I'm thinking of, you know, this is the age of the of the robber baron and, and all of the rest of that, and we all think of Carnegie and Rockefeller. Do any of these guys start to approach those kinds of success levels um, because they've gotten very good at this, or does this stay very local? No, they stay very local. And then the other thing that they they do is that they also influence the state government. So they're really, so the business people, they stay local, they enrich themselves locally, they, you know, extract from the cities that they're in, and they also exercise influence at the state level in terms of creating the rules that make it possible for them to get rich and for them to stay rich. And so that's really what they're, or to stay in power, if, if, if that's the case. So they're really kind of operating at the local level and then operating at the uh, state level. All right. We would like to thank our guest for this 549th show, Dr. Patricia Scratch, professor of an undergraduate director in the Department of Political Science at the University of Albany. We've been talking about her book with Dr. Kathleen Sullivan, The Politics of Trash, How Governments Used Corruption to Clean Cities from 1890 to 1929. The History Bus for today were Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA, KALA HD2 and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find well over 150 shows of ROI. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.